Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. You're probably familiar with compost, but what do you know about compost tea? No, it's not something you serve your friends, unless, of course, all your friends are plants. And, you know, they might just appreciate the microbial boost provided by compost tea. But please note that I did not say nutritional boost. There's a lot of opinion and personal experience associated with the compost tea knowledge base. But not that much about it has had a lot of peer-reviewed research, and that includes its alleged nutritional value. One master gardener who has pursued that topic deep into the academic rabbit holes is Ralph Marini. He's a Piedmont, Virginia master gardener and researcher. Today we talk with Ralph about what he found out about compost tea in research papers, how to make it, how to use it, and what to expect from compost tea. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in just over 30 minutes. Let's go. A few weeks ago on the Garden Basics podcast, we were talking with Steve Zion. Sacramento's organic advocate. He was telling us about how plants communicate, and it's basically through root exudates. Very interesting. And then he uh, went into uh, the benefits of feeding your soil a compost tea concoction, and his idea of the best compost tea is made from earthworm castings, and he calls it worm tea. That brought up all sorts of other questions, and I imagine you, too, have a lot of questions about compost tea, how it works, and it seems like a lot of work, and exactly what the benefits are. You won't find much clarity in the research done about compost tea. You find its advocates, you find its detractors, and really what it comes down to is garbage in, garbage out, sort of like computer stuff. But we're going to talk with a guy who has done some research about compost tea, he is a master gardener with the Piedmont, Virginia Master Gardeners Association. His name is Ralph Marini. And Ralph, uh, your master gardener organization has a wonderful newsletter that uh, covers all sorts of information. I believe it's called the Garden Shed Newsletter. That's right, Fred. It's been around since 2015. And uh, we have a couple of thousand subscribers and uh, some very dedicated writers. We try to do a good job on you know, research-based horticultural uh, education and writing. And I thank you for putting together that article for the Garden Shed newsletter called The Truth About Compost Tea, Making It, Using It, and What to Expect from It. It was a very sober look at the pluses and minuses of compost tea and also the fact that we really don't know very much about it. It's, it's amazing, though. Like I say, it has its uh, adamant supporters and its... Uh, I won't say detractors, but people who uh, have a lot of cautionary tales about it. Before we get started with that, let's talk a little bit about uh, gardening in Virginia, where you are. Sort of it's north central Virginia, the Charlottesville area. Uh, what is gardening like there in USDA zone 7A? Well, we're, uh, you know, we do our 
our, well, our soil to start off with is uh, largely um, uh, compacted clay, quite acidic. Uh, so, you know, we're very focused on adding organic matter and, and using compost in its various forms to improve the soil. Our planting season typically starts in uh, early to mid-March with the cooler weather crops. Final frost average date is between April 15th and 25th. I took a look at the long-term forecast this week and put my tomato plants in a couple of days ago, uh, just the last week in April. Um, looks like I'm going to be okay this year. It, um, a little chancy then in uh, Virginia with a with an average last frost date of late April. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be dicey. We had a last frost on May 9th two years ago, so we were all scrambling to run out and cover our warm weather stuff that was out there. Uh, but you know, in general, it's pretty friendly. The summers get pretty hot and rainfall can be kind of sparse. Uh, so, um, you know, we like having a lot of organic matter in the soil to make sure that whatever does come down, we absorb and we hold on to. It's a, It can be pretty tricky. What, what are some of the uh, favorite uh, tomato varieties of uh, gardeners there? I think we like stuff that uh, is um, blight and mildew resistant. Uh, I do, at least. I use some of the Rutgers and uh, Better Boy hybrids you know i think it's what i look for is is disease and, and uh particularly blight resistance yeah talk a little bit about that because one thing that you have there in virginia that people in usda zones nine and possibly eight don't have to contend with very much uh, of course it depends where you live all gardening is local but you have high humidity levels there in the summertime yeah we can be very susceptible to uh to the fungal diseases and um you know, we encourage when we when we're working with people, we encourage people to to uh, water early in the day, water plant bases, try to keep your leaves dry. Good hygiene, good soil hygiene uh, is really important um, to keep uh, pests and, and soil-borne diseases away. And and look for hybrids that of uh, you know various um, produce that that are resistant to the diseases that plague us. We early and late blight have been really bad on tomatoes, but last year I went with uh, the Rutgers. A Rutgers variety that is resistant and had quite good luck with it, so I'm sticking with it. The ones who love the, uh, you know, the uh, older varieties, I admire them for for working on them. But I find that uh, you have to be really dedicated to keep them healthy. One thing we've noticed here in California about tomato varieties, the the old heirloom tomato varieties that originated back east, is they don't perform that well out here in a hotter, drier climate, especially brandy wine, where out here you might be lucky to get one tomato per plant. <laughs> yeah, that's I understand. I, I've tried to grow brandy wines. You know, they're local to the uh, mid-Atlantic mid region here, but but tough. I find I've had disease issues that have stymied me here. The climate's okay, except for the uh, the pests and diseases. What are some of the favorite fruit trees that are grown in your area? We have, um, you know, a lot of different uh, apple and uh, peach varieties. Uh, pawpaws the, are a, a native fruit that uh, a lot of people grow. You know, it's pretty typical. There are, there are a lot of um, vineyards locally or in this part of virginia and uh, i don't know much about grape varieties i've never really grown them but um, people do seem to make it work we have you know, some pretty decent local wines and a lot of uh, privately owned vineyards in our area well now people out here want to know what the heck is a pawpaw it's a um yeah i don't know how to describe it you know it's a a lush kind of a seeded fruit 
about the size of your fist if you grow them well. People who like them, love them. You can eat them raw. You can, you know, do a variety of uh, cooked kind of desserts with them. I think you have to eat one to, to be able to describe it. And, and I don't have a great description for you, I'm sorry to say. Is it a, a tree or a shrub? Small tree. Small tree. Yeah. yeah. And it's a deciduous tree, I would think? Yes. Mm-hmm. And when does it usually produce the fruit? Uh, late summer, early fall. All right. It looks kind of like, I'm looking at a picture of it. It looks like a, a very seedy guava sort of. So I imagine. Yeah, you know, it, right. <laughs> go ahead. That's fair. That's a fair comparison. <laughs> and so you eat it with a spoon, I would think. I can't honestly tell you the best ways to eat it because I'm not a big fan. We do have an article in the Garden Shed on growing and preparing pawpaws for consumption. I think it was about a year ago, if anybody wanted to look it up. Uh, you could find it. All right. We'll have a, a link to that in uh, today's show notes about, oh, great. Uh, about how to grow pawpaws then. Uh, that's a, yeah. I and mean, that's a, we, we were always looking to try something new. I'm not sure how adaptable it is to California because it is a native of uh, the Eastern United States and Canada. <laughs> and we're also, we love our high bush and low, low bush blueberries too. Uh, I don't know how well they grow in your area. You know, they love very acidic soil, so it's kind of appropriate for our native clay. And it's pretty popular. Um, you know, it's a million ways to make create to uh, eat blueberries, uh, good health food, and um, easy to grow. So I, I recommend them. My screensaver on my phone is a plate of homegrown blueberries. So, so yes, <laughs> <Can't beat it. laughs> it is great. Yeah, out here, we like to grow the southern high bush uh, varieties because they don't need as many chill hours. And I imagine it's the northern high bush that are popular there. Yeah, we're kind of right on the margin. Uh, we can get by with both, but uh, the northern is, I think, probably more prevalent. Yeah, because it's bigger berries more than likely. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what Steve Zion was telling us a few weeks ago. Back in uh, Garden Basics episode 188, uh, called How Plants Communicate, also there's Bermuda grass control tips in that episode. Steve Zion was uh, talking about uh, how plants communicate, and he uh, dovetailed that into the benefits of worm castings and worm tea. And he said this. Now, earthworm castings are expensive. And, and most people aren't going to be able to afford putting down six inches of worm castings. What you can do is get some worm castings and make what's called worm tea. And you basically put the worm castings in, in like a tea bag and put it in a five-gallon bucket, get an aquarium pump to pump air into that, you know, water-containing bucket with a tea in there, and brew that for 24 to 48 hours, and then spray that on your soil and then water it in. There will be huge, huge amounts of soil biology in that tea. Well, that's an interesting statement, but uh, I always like to uh, uh, look at the facts of the matter. And this is where Ralph Marini comes in with that wonderful article he wrote for the Garden Shed newsletter by the Piedmont Master Gardeners about the very subject of the truth about compost tea, making it, using it, and what to expect from it. With And it's very well sourced as well that you can find the, the originating materials in that uh, newsletter as well. So, Ralph, uh, let, let's talk about basics for maybe people who don't know anything about compost tea. What is compost tea? Compost tea is a, a solution uh, made from compost, a clean water combined in a, a bucket or, or some sort of a container. We recommend that it be aerated 
Steve mentioned, uh, the best way to do that is with a, an aquarium pump. Best couple of outlets and a couple of uh, air stones to be put in your bucket. Let it run for uh, one to two days. What exactly are air stones? For aquarium users, uh, you would know, but uh, you know the typical aquarium aeration system includes a, a pump that sits outside the aquarium and then basically a couple of diffusers that the air from the pump will go into an inlet on what's called a stone and it becomes diffused at the output side of the stone and blows bubbles into the water. It's, it's really that simple, readily available online or at an, a, a pet store. So what does compost tea look like? If you have it in a the compost in a mesh bag, it's a pretty clean, a nice brown, earthy smelling liquid. If you haven't had it in a mesh bag, you're going to need to filter it if you want to spray it anywhere. But what it does is it, it allows the microbes in the compost to multiply many, many times over so that you have an extremely microbe-rich solution. Its advocates claim that it can be used for anything from uh, fertilization, which I'm not buying, to uh, enriching the microbe content in the soil, which is what Steve refers to. And if you have enough organic matter in your soil to feed them, it can it can release a lot of the nutrients that that, uh, that matter is holding in the soil. Uh, some people use it, use it as a foliar spray, which if you have the right type of microbes in the solution can help to uh, prevent disease by outcompeting or, you know, the, the good guys somehow overtake the bad guys and it can reduce disease damage on your plants. Or you can use it to stoke up your compost pile if you want to get some more mm. uh, microbial activity going in your compost pile, for instance. It can be sprayed on the lawn or on the ground directly. There's a lot of things you can do with it. You know, my own view of it is that your amount of compost is typically about one or one and a half cups per gallon of water. So I think people who claim a lot of nutrient in it are overstating the case. There can't be that much nutrient. On the other hand, the microbial content is where it could conceivably have some benefit, both on uh, releasing nutrients in soil if the soil uh, has enough organic material for them to feast on for a while, or potentially if you have the right microbes in it, it might help uh, disease prevention on, on plants. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Piedmont Master Gardener of Virginia, Ralph Marini, about compost tea. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of Smart Pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the Smart Pot. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. 
And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. We're chatting with Ralph Marini. He's a master gardener with the Piedmont Master Gardener Program in Virginia. He's done a lot of research about compost tea, what it is, and how to use it. Compost tea is not something that's new. Uh, in the newsletter, you point out your, your grandparents used compost tea. Right. They had a chicken yard, and uh, they collected chicken manure, put it in half a wine barrel. They were Italian immigrants, and they made their own wine. They had a half of an old wine barrel that they put outside, and it collected rainwater, and they dumped the chicken manure in there, and they would make this horrendous-smelling uh, slurry. When I was old enough to carry a bucket, they would enlist me to carry buckets of uh, of this stuff down and pour it on the base of their tomato plants for a nice nitrogen boost. Uh, that's not recommended anymore because the anaerobic nature of that of that stuff, which we now call leachate, can house uh, E. coli bacteria and uh, other pathogenic uh, bacteria. I don't think they were ever affected, but in fact, I haven't seen a lot of research that has demonstrated a negative impact. But I certainly wouldn't want to pour that stuff on anything I was going to eat and have some you know, concerns about pouring it on a vegetable garden in general. The E. coli and salmonella uh, chance of getting would be increased if you're using something that spreads those diseases like chicken manure. What yes, about if it's. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. If the compost is manure based, you know, there's there's a higher likelihood that it's going to be in there. I think if you're uh, one tip I would give is that uh, if you want to make something that you're going to spray in your in your vegetable garden, get your either make it make sure that you're using hot compost, which means it should stay up above 130 degrees for four days or more, or purchase compost from a commercial supplier that's OMRI certified, part of the uh, National Organic Program, where they are actually certify their stuff to, uh, to be made at those higher temperatures. Uh, that should kill the pathogens in the compost. Right. Yeah. A good compost pile, a good hot compost pile can solve a lot of the world's ills. Really. Yeah. This all goes back to what we said originally about garbage in, garbage out. That If you use a high quality 
compost for your tea or just in general, you're going to have better results. And part of that with the tea is interesting. And you point this out in the newsletter is think about the water you're using. Your grandparents used rainwater, which is probably the best. But in this day and age, especially here in California, saving rainwater is difficult. Uh, But talk about uh, what are some things in commercial water in municipal water systems that you really don't want in a compost tea? Sure. Well, you, you want to make sure your water is potable, starting off with. But beyond that, you can't have any chlorine or chloramine in it because, you know, they're, the reason they're in the water is to kill bacteria and, uh, and fun, fungi. And so you don't want to, you have to get rid of that stuff. If, if, you, if you put a chlorinated water in your bucket before you put your compost in and you bubble it for a day or so, uh, you get rid of the chlorine, it should be okay. Chloramine is longer lasting, and you can't just get rid of it by aerating or boiling. Uh, you really have to extract that from the water by using a charcoal filter. Or uh, There are some materials that are used in aquariums that will help you. Uh, if you mix it with the water, it uh, changes the, the chemical composition of the chloramine, and it will leave the water by aeration. Uh, you can get that at a, a pet supply store or probably online these days. So you need to find out if your water is treated, what it's treated with, and take appropriate uh, measures to get that stuff out of the water. So we talked about basically bubbling it with an, an aquarium pump for 24 to 48 hours, and that is to make sure there is oxygen in there for the microbes. I would think right. then you, you can't do all that bubbling for 48 hours and then walk away and come back in a couple of days and spray it and still get the same results. You would have to apply it immediately after the bubbling process. Right. It's recommended to be used within about four hours. The uh, You know, you're, you're generating all this microbial activity and they're really uh, chunking along. And if you leave them in there, uh, the large population that's very highly active is going to consume the oxygen. They'll go anaerobic. That destroys the, the point of, the, of your whole process. And, you know, for that same reason, I'm very skeptical of store-bought compost teas. Uh, some of them even claim to be made aerobically, but when they're sitting on the shelf for However long they're there, it's pretty hard to believe they they remain that way. You know, I've tried to find some sort of research-based data about that and haven't been able to, but I, I wouldn't recommend them. I think if you want to do this, you're much better off making your tea yourself. So unlike your grandparents who were basically um, covering their plants with leachate, mm-hmm. what is now used is called, with the acronym AACT, Actively Aerated Compost Tea. Yeah, that uh, signifies the, uh, the process that we talked about where we pump air into the water during the entire process, the entire tea making process. Anybody who has a worm bin is doing it for the worm castings. But as you know, you have to keep th- that worm bin at a certain level of moistness and there is drainage involved that you can collect. And that would be worm leachate. Is that good for anything? Have you seen any research on that? Here in California, we're leery to recommend using that liquid from worm bins for anything because the research isn't there. Yeah, I've seen speculation, you know, anecdotal evidence, people saying that they use it and it has a benefit on their soil. But I'm in the same boat as you. I haven't seen anything analytical that really dealt, you know, developed any data around it. So, I mean, I think it's probably okay. I'm I'm sure that there's uh, microbial activity and Vermicompost is excellent stuff. There's no doubt about that uh, from a nutritional and uh, microbial 
standpoint. So I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be spraying it on my plants, but I think adding it to soil is probably okay. Now there are advocates like Steve Zion who say it's a great foliar spray for reducing the chances of disease. Have you seen any research based on its effectiveness as a foliar spray? No research. Same answer. Unfortunately, uh, I've seen mostly organic gardeners and YouTube types talking about that they've had success with it, but nothing at all from uh, any of the extension services or uh, research-based groups that I trust. And again, we come back to garbage in, garbage out. The tea that is made from the compost is really dependent upon your sources of the compost. The the better the quality of the compost, the better the quality the compost tea will be. Yeah, so how do you measure good quality compost? Main thing, in my view, is it needs to be hot compost. I suppose manure-based composts are likely to have a little bit of a little bit higher nitrogen content, which are great for flowers and vegetables. Stuff that's made from arborist waste and that kind of thing leaves uh, yard waste are likely to be higher fungal content, which are great for uh, shrubs and trees. You know, it's more typical of what you'd find in the forest. So that makes some sense to me. You know, unless you get an analysis of the compost that you buy, which isn't very common, I think focusing on, on hot compost and trying to understand what the main ingredients are is the best approach. Interesting you brought up forest products because we're learning more and more about mulches and their use, and the same is true with compost, is the the critters in the soil, all that mycorrhizal activity really depends on what's in the soil already and the type of plants that are growing around there. And you have two types of basically mulch or could be compost tea, a fungally dominated tea or a bacterially dominated tea. One is better for woody plants. One is better for your annual plants. Yeah, I think, you know, the herbaceous plants uh, tend to be high nitrogen consumers. You know, we plant them, harvest them, replant them every year. And they they tend to be high nitrogen consumers. And um, so for that kind of a use, a higher nitrogen uh, tea can be helpful. The problem with creating them is, uh, you know, beyond the basic content of the compost is that uh, the additives that are typically recommended are sugar-based, like an unsulfured molasses or something. The, the sugars tend to um, enable more reproduction on the part of the uh, pathogenic microbes that we don't want in our tea. For instance, uh, if uh, that stuff is added to a compost tea, the organic, National Organic Program requires the growers to have the tea analyzed to make sure that there is no coliform or salmonella in it before it's allowed to be used on their crops or their you know their group their soil or their plants. On the other hand, forests which tend to be you know they're permanent perennial. The stuff on the forest floor is de- decomposed leaves and wood basically. It's a much higher carbon content. It's harder to break down the stuff that <laughs> it's broken down by by fungi mainly. Ninety percent of uh, our plants. I know our mycorrhizal fung- fungi partners, and so for that reason, uh, those kinds of uh, teas, which are tend to be the uh, fungal content can be bolstered by fulvic or humic acid, they tend to be appropriate for uh, woody plants. In my own case, I make my compost at home out of kitchen and, and yard waste, so there's a high carbon content in what I put in there, and I think it it is pretty appropriate for that particular use. So that would be a bacterially dominated uh, product that you're making, which would be perfect for your uh, vegetables, for example. Right. All right. And the wood dominated compost is better for the permanent crops like perennials 
Right. Well said. All right. You use a, a phrase there that I want to explore a little bit further, uh, humic acid. And I've often wondered, what exactly is humus? I ask every gardener I meet, do you know what humus is? And I'm still waiting for an answer I can understand. <laughs> well, I can tell you how I see it. Okay. I think humus is kind of the, the final decomposition stage of organic matter. It tends to exist naturally in forests where the the woody content of the organic matter that decomposes there is the last stuff to break down. You know, to contrast it, compost is more in the middle of the decomposition process. The compost that we make and use in our gardens or, or buy commercially is partially decomposed. It's decomposed to the point where the initial ingredients are unrecognizable. It has a nice fluffy feel. It has an earthy smell. It's nice, dark, rich look, and it adds a lot of both nutrition and textural and structural uh, benefits to the soil and water absorbency and filtration, all that kind of stuff. Well, let's say that we've reached the usable compost stage in a matter of several months from where we were putting raw organic matter together uh, to try to compost it. So the compost that we put in the soil decomposes further, and over the next year or two, it it starts to approach what you might call uh, humus, where most of the non-carbon-based nutrient is converted by the microbes in the soil and and released to the plants so that ultimately what's left are smaller particles of very high carbon material that's kind of the last stage of decomposition you know we went from raw organic material to usable compost in say three to six months maybe once we get down to humus over the next couple of years uh, humus takes decades some people say centuries to completely uh, decompose so I see um, I see compost and humus as being different stages of the decomposition process. Back when I had acreage, I had a lot of, shall we call them passive compost piles, where basically mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, garden waste and, and tree branches got chopped up and, and thrown into a pile. And I'd let that pile just sit there for a few years. And then when I wanted a new area of a garden, I would sort of move away the top portion of it. And voila, I've got a very enriched garden bed to plant in. Yeah, yeah. My mom actually called our pile a humus pile when I was growing up. So the, the most effective compost then in that pile, if you have that pile, is closer to the soil surface. Typically, that's the the furthest broken down. You know, it depends how long it's been there, I guess. But yeah, a lot of gardeners like to use their nose. What does a finished compost tea smell like? You know, I see the the term earthy. It's um, I'm not sure. I'm, my wife tells me I. My nose is pretty much useless, so I'm not sure I'm the best one to ask that question to. But it's a, a rich, earthy, you know, attractive smell. Uh, if you smell something that's like ammonia or gassy, a methane kind of smell, that means it's gone anaerobic. You know, if it, if it doesn't smell appealing and you're a gardener, you know, I think we can kind of trust each other's uh, definition of what an appealing, earthy smell is. Uh, if it's not like that, don't use it. How the heck do you use a sprayer if you want to use a sprayer? It seems to me it'd be a lot easier that after you're done uh, processing this compost tea would be to just to put it in a bucket and spread it around the plants as opposed to putting it in a sprayer and have to deal with possible uh, uh, clogs. Yeah, you have to filter it if you're going to spray it. And when would you use a sprayer? Like if you're spreading it on your lawn, for instance, or you know some large area where pouring around specific plants was not what you were trying to do, but you were trying to coat something with uh, the material. A, a foliar spray is another example. So you need to, you definitely need to filter it to put it into a sprayer. Uh, most people recommend putting your compost into into a a bag that when you're when you're doing the uh, the tea generation while it's in the bucket, 
And perhaps if you're going to put it in a sprayer and make a foliar spray out of it, you want to put it through some kind of a mesh fabric again afterward just to make sure there's no material in there that's going to clog your sprayer. And that brings up uh, the other point of when you're done with the whole thing, I imagine it's important to clean everything you've used. Definitely want to clean it extremely well and, in fact, disinfect it. You know, it's better to put some some kind of a uh, light chlorine solution in there, wash it out, and then, then rinse it just to make sure that there's no bacteria breeding in there when you don't want there to be. If you want to read more about compost tea, including the original source material, read the Piedmont Master Gardener's newsletter, the Garden Shed newsletter. This was in March of 2019 that Ralph Marini wrote this article called The Truth About Compost Tea, Making It, Using It, and What to Expect from It. I'll have a link to that in today's show notes as well. Ralph Marini is with the Virginia Cooperative Extension Piedmont Master Gardener Program Good research, Ralph. Thanks so much for telling us about compost tea. Fred, I'm happy I was able to speak with you. We've talked on the Garden Basics podcast and in the Farmer Fred Rant blog page in the past about the heart-healthy benefits of growing garden crops high in soluble fiber. Crops like blueberries, beans, artichokes, apricots, peas, and a lot more. In Friday's Beyond the Basics newsletter, we veer onto a scenic bypass regarding this. How a healthier diet, including growing and eating many of these homegrown crops, along with regular exercise and a positive outlook, has actually kept me alive and well since my quadruple coronary artery heart bypass surgery, as well as the diagnosis of full-blown diabetes 10 years ago. The surgery was a success back then, but I knew there had to be changes in my life to keep the heart healthy and to control the diabetes. Well, mission accomplished, and in that first year of recovery, it went so well that by the end of 2012, I was off all prescription drugs for cholesterol control and diabetes, with the doctor's blessings, of course. How did I do it? Well, it's in the newsletter that goes beyond the basics, the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter, out Friday, May 27th. Find it via the link in today's show notes, or visit our new website, gardenbasics.net. There, you can find a link to the newsletter in one of the tabs at the top of the page. Also, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the podcast, as well as read an enhanced transcript of the podcast episode that you're now listening to. It's at GardenBasics.net, where you can also link to the Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And it's free. Look for the newsletter on Friday, May 27th. Take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Basics newsletter, Find it at GardenBasics.net or at GardenBasics.substack.com. And thanks for listening, and thanks for reading. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.